Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of trying therapy, learn more at BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp.com. Dear listener, it's that time again when I get the opportunity to bring two of my greatest loves together in a single heartwarming spring message. It's the Second World War with beer. Our dear friends at Beer 52 are once again offering listeners to We Have Ways a carefully curated case of free beer brewed in God's own county, Yorkshire. And just to be clear, that case of beer, dear listener, is free. Simply go to beer52.com slash talk and cover just £5.95 postage to receive your free case now. Beer 52's industry experts carefully curate a new case every month, showcasing the very best craft beer and independent breweries from around the world. This month, you'll get the Timothy Taylor Tallboy, a smooth and hoppy pale ale bursting with flavours and aromas. And the chaps at North Brewing in Leeds are sending out a highly drinkable pale ale. Also, Black Sheep Brewery have canned their Rigwelter Dark Ale to cask strength for the first time in its 27-year history. What's that? Don't like dark beer? Simply choose the light case and don't forget you get a couple of tasty snacks and the award-winning Ferment magazine. Even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel any time. So, that's beer52.com slash talk to claim your free case now. That's beer52.com forward slash talk. Cheers! Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray. John McManus and James Holland, uh, far flung across the globe as we are. Well, I'm not. I'm I'm in my office as usual. But John, of course, is in the US. And James, where are you? Uh, I'm in Casino. I'm I'm from my room. I can see the Abbey and the Castle. So I've got a double whammy view. Really? Wow! Amazing. Absolutely incredible. But but when even though we're not interested in Italy today, even though you're within view of the iconic uh, battlefield. Um, uh, we are not Italian Battlefield. We are not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about this absolutely amazing book that we've been fortunate enough to have first dibs on, uh, which is John's John's new book, To the End of the Earth. And John, I, um, 
It's just, it's absolutely, I mean, you know, it's, anyone listening to this who wants some sort of like critical grit of this oyster isn't going to get any. This book's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolutely fabulous. It's it's full of, I mean, it's, it's literally everything you want from a narrative history book about the Pacific because yeah. most people, particularly in the UK, but I, I would suspect all around the world, know only sketchy stuff about the Pacific War. What this is brilliant at is telling you all the kind of, latest up-to-date thinking on this from someone who absolutely knows what they're talking about, who's absolutely rolled up their sleeves and done the hard yards in terms of research, but writes it in a really, really fantastic and gripping way with absolutely tons of human drama and just a collection of of, uh, an unbelievable cast list of characters, all of whom are incredibly colourful. And I would argue that possibly 90% of them, most people, even with an interest in the Second World War, have never even heard of and i have a new hero and he's called joe swing and he is absolutely (laughs) the man i mean where's he been all my life that's what i want to know joe swing is unreal i mean he is one of the airborne pioneers cool yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely and i want to i don't want to kind of i don't want to be hurried on him or the 11th airborne oh in any shape or form well, but anyway, I mean, we should we, we should backtrack a bit. Well, what what I well I was gonna I was gonna say what I really love about um uh, the way you've laid the book out, uh, John, is that you start inevitably with MacArthur and and sort of then grow a family tree beneath him of all the people <laughs> you know as the command chain works its way down. So you start with him and the absurd business of his wife being allowed to visit and 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 all that you know that that, that he's running the battle he's running the campaign sort of on a personal level. And then you get down to the people who are actually living the campaign on a personal level, the, the, the man in the foxhole, and some of whom are familiar to, to listeners to the podcast like Eugene Sledge, but also a cast of people on both sides of all kinds of um, fascinating people. And also the, I mean, I think that while, um, you, you know, you're, um, the way you're addressing the American campaign is comprehensive, the way you get in, you know, behind the scenes of the Japanese campaign, the personalities at work um, uh, on, on that side of the hill... And the differing approaches and the, you know, the sort of despair um, in the Japanese camp, particularly um, in Okinawa. I mean, although we're not, we're not, we're not going to get to there today, but I'm fascinated by the arguments about attack and counterattack and defence within the Japanese camp. There are plenty of people who know that there's no point trying to counterattack because American firepower is so overwhelming. But if you hang on and defend, you can probably do it forever or pretty much forever. It's just, it's an amazing book, John. I'm, I'm blown away. Seriously. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Al. That's you've made my day. Um, you know, so I figured, <laughs> I figured if there's anything we we sort of do remember in in our popular recollection of the Pacific War about the Army's presence, it's Douglas mm. MacArthur. Yeah. And what's amazed me all these years is that we know MacArthur is one of the sort of dominant lions of the theater. Yeah. But I think that far too often in our popular memory of World War II, we, we didn't stop to think about, well, he's got this vast army underneath him, yeah. too. It's not yeah. just the Marines fighting there. And in fact, um, by the time MacArthur's forces invade Luzon in January 1945, that is the second largest concentration of U.S. ground combat power on the planet behind, yeah. of course, only Eisenhower. Mm. Um, and so it's it's just this incredibly vast complex and I think really fascinating on a human level story. Um, And I think it really can kind of, when we look at it this way, we really can kind of revise our view of what the, uh, the war against Japan really was and what it actually entailed. 1.8 million American ground soldiers served 
in the Pacific Asia theater. Yeah. That's, that's the third largest army this country has ever sent overseas to fight a war. Yeah. And that, yeah. that does kick the numbers of Marines into touch, doesn't it? By quite, quite substantially. Oh, and big I, time. And didn't you say that, I think, I think you wrote that the MacArthur's got direct command of, is it 60% of that or 65% of that or something like that? He's got, you know, most of the, the army combat power in theater, though not all. And that's how vast this army is, because some of it is uh, on the Asian continent. You know, the famous Merrill's Marauders and whatnot on yeah, yeah. Burma. We do tend to remember that. Uh, but also you've got a lot of Army uh, engineers who are building the famous Stillwell Road yeah. uh, to China. And then you've got other Army divisions that are attached to Nimitz um, that are under his command. So you have a real kind of multi-service truce that's gone on in that. But but MacArthur has most of the, the Army ground combat power and ground service force power He's got, um, you know, probably something over about 14 plus divisions that are going to be under his control by, by the end of the war. So he's got two field armies, 6th and 8th. And the, uh, and the contrast between those two armies and their two commanders is, is, is a story in itself, isn't it? Which is, you know, the, the Kruger and his style and the way MacArthur, you know, knows what, knows what Kruger's capable of and also what he's not capable of and how you end up in a peculiar way. You sort of end up, with a story not unlike in Europe, the idea of some generals who have dash and vim and others who grind and are s- slow and ponderous, that kind of that contrast, which which in reading it, John, it may be, you know, the contrast between, you know, Kruger and Eichelberger and, and MacArthur's attitude to the pair of them really reminded me of, you know, of of this idea in Northwest Europe that you've got people who are people with dash and people without and in and they're given the jobs they're best suited to or and is it even true that one has dash and one doesn't and is it circumstance is it the luck of the draw of who they're up against where they're being made to fight it's just it's so interesting because it's it's interesting how similar some of the stories at at that level at the army and core level are in in questions of command you know it's it's fascinating john absolutely and what 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 does what does MacArthur say to eichelberger the commander of the us 8th army he says, you can be the pattern of the Pacific, Bob. Listen, we, what we should do, we just, <laughs> we need to be careful because we've, we've all, you've written the book and, um, John and Al and I have read it. So <laughs> we now know what we're talking about, but I'm very conscious that most people might, might not. So I think it's, I, I think what we should, what we should do in this, in these next two pods is I think we should focus on Luzon and then, yeah. Next time we chat, we should, you know, frankly, I don't care if we spend the next six episodes devoted entirely to, to, to this book. I don't want to be rushed about it. And I think it's really important that we go through the campaigns in this book one by one. And I yeah. think today we should do Luzon. And I think to set that up, we, I think you need to explain, John, what the heck is going on? Why MacArthur's there? Why the Philippines? Who's Eichelberger? What are the stakes? What's going on? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, most people don't know this stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, right. You know, you're right. They really don't. And and that's partly what fascinated me about it, that I thought I knew it. <laughs> Once I got into researching it, I, I realized how little I did know yeah. uh, and how fascinating and how important this was. So, really, if we're looking at the deep roots. Um, you know, all of this goes back, really, to the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, when when the U.S. fights Spain, and at that point, Spain is the colonial overseer of the Philippines, and then the Americans, once they defeat Spain, decide, you know what, we're going to stay here as a colony, and this, you know, leads to war with the Filipino uh, with Filipino nationalists. But the bottom line is, the Americans have had this kind of half colony there for four decades by World War II. I, so I, I think 
that American decision is one of the most fateful in all of modern U.S. history because it has profound consequences for World War II. Um, the Japanese don't really want the Philippines per se when they make war on the Western powers. They want all those resources in, in Indonesia, what was the Dutch East Indies. But they have to deal with the Philippines because it'd be an American bone in their throat. And so, you know, they're better prepared for and war. And it's kind of in the way, isn't it? It's totally in the way. Geographically, it's completely in the way. Yeah, it's in the way. And, and they also think, and I can understand why the Japanese felt this way, they also thought at the outset of the war, Filipinos are going to want to be liberated from white colonialism. Um, And, you know, and they thought that in other places in Asia, too, of course. Uh, But in the Philippines, one thing that's a really an unpleasant surprise for the Japanese is just how pro-U.S. the the clear majority of the population was. And so MacArthur is kind of the the, uh, American... Uh, sort of of like the father of the Philippines on some levels from an American point of view, because his family has long ties there. His father had commanded U.S. military forces during the Philippine-American War. Douglas had served there many times in his career. He loved the archipelago and its people. And so when he and his forces are defeated in 1942, it's MacArthur's great you know, ambition to come back and liberate the archipelago. And he believes that the U S has a moral duty to this. And I would tell you guys, I think personally, just from studying this MacArthur in some ways is more interested in liberating the Philippines than actually going to Japan and defeating the Japanese in the home islands. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, he's that committed to it. So he's gotten most of what he wants strategically in, um, you know, in the sort of internecine grand strategical arguments uh, in DC and elsewhere which means that he's gotten the go-ahead to, to launch these major operations to liberate the archipelago the, in the first... But, um, but to a certain extent, he's, he's absolutely right, isn't he? I mean, the U.S. does have a moral obligation to, to, to liberate the Philippines. Well, in the sense, you know, in the sense that the, the Filipinos were largely pro-American, that there were a lot of Filipino guerrilla units operating against the Japanese from 1942 on, there were Americans who were part of that unit, there were American POWs and civilian internees and other Western civilian internees in the archipelago. Um, yeah. And I, and I also think that when you're talking about severing, you know, if we're talking like, in a sort of bloodless strategic level, severing those Japanese sea lanes between the Dutch East Indies and the home islands, the Philippines can do that for you. So the, 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 uh, the argument was whether to go to the, it, it boiled down to whether to go to the Philippines or, or uh, Formosa slash Taiwan and yeah, yeah, the yeah. latter. And you know, that the was be a tough nut to crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Admiral King was 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 very keen on that, wasn't he? And he's the um, yeah. he's the overall chief of the U.S. Navy. He's the chief of naval operations, right? Is there a sense in the Philippines? Because after all, there's a sort of parallel thing here with India, India's involvement in the British imperial effort. That sort of the offer for Indian soldiers is that at the end of this, once we've fended off this, you know, if it isn't a war between empires, once we've fended off this empire, who are much worse than we are, even though we're an imperial power, it's the British pitch, right? Um. You, you can head towards uh, independence. Is that also part of what the Americans are saying to the Filipinos? You know, help us, we'll liberate you, help us liberate you, and then, and then, you, and then we'll let you go, so to speak. So to yes, speak. And, it, and it wasn't just a sort of implicit kind of thing, uh, like especially with like the French and the Algerians or something. Yeah. There was the, the Congress had passed in 1934 the Tidings McDuffie Act, which committed the United States to giving the Philippines its independence in 1946. 
So well, I, in the meantime, the war happens. Um, and when the, when the war broke out, by the way, uh, in 41 or 42, the Philippines president at that point, Manuel Quezon, had hoped to walk some sort of neutral course to forestall a Japanese yeah. invasion. Now, he was living in a fantasy world at that point. Yeah, yeah. But the Americans, too, it's, Al, it's interesting you mentioned um, India because the Americans it's in the Philippines had kind of taken a page out of, out of Britain's book in creating yeah. a kind of um, colonial-style army. So what had happened in the late 30s, and MacArthur's a huge part of this, uh, the U.S. is transitioning the Philippines to its independence, partially by building up armed forces, which are composed primarily of Filipinos, but under American command and American training and advising and weaponry and all that. And it's yep. nowhere near prepared by the time of the war. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the, there is certainly not just a, a kind of implied promise. It's by law that the Philippines will get its independence. And right, so right. The, all of these um, Filipino guerrilla groups are, are thinking of the future, and many of them have different political ideas and concepts. It's, again, remarkably similar to resistance movements in Europe and elsewhere yeah. in the war, yeah. because in the Philippines, it's a civil war going on um, once the Japanese invade. And so there are some Filipinos who will cast their lot with the Japanese, almost out of anti-Americanism. But they are in the minority. And this is yeah. what's profoundly disillusioning to many Japanese soldiers in the archipelago who felt they were coming as liberators and are instead harassed and sniped at and, you know, they, you yeah. know, just not greeted nicely. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when the Americans do come, so the, the first the, the first major operation to liberate the Philippines is the invasion of Leyte in October 1944. Yeah. And that's when you start to see this pattern set of uh, the Philippine guerrillas as real force multipliers for the U.S. Intel, uh, light infantry, lines of communication, population security, all those kinds of things going on that are really helping MacArthur's forces. Yeah. And he, too, I should point out, too, uh, MacArthur's HQ from Australia onward had been helping supply a lot of these guerrillas yeah. uh, by submarine and whatnot. And they'd been in communication with them. Yeah. So, so, so running a full-on insurgency in the Philippines yeah. against the Japanese. Those those guerrillas are, are, are feature in some of those um, prisoner of war rescues, don't they? Where they they guide and they f- provide flanking cover and all that sort of stuff. Because there's incredibly dramatic scenes in the first couple of chapters in your book of POWs being rescued. Um, just absolutely really extraordinary is. stories. Yeah, um, the, just you know, these the, coup de main. Yeah, these coup de main and the Japanese deciding whether to surrender or not trying to negotiate extraction of POWs without there being a firefight and all this sort of stuff. It's absolute. Those stories are absolutely incredible. They really are. It's one of the most fascinating sides of this. Yeah. 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 Away from the big campaign stuff, these sort of flying columns inserted, inserting themselves to, to find POWs. I mean, you know, I, and I had, I had no idea if, you know, I'll hold my hand up. I had no idea any of that went on. Um, and what's really interesting, though, is it, as we were saying earlier on, the parallels with Western Europe, it offers a parallel, doesn't it? Because you suddenly, re- the, the American, the, the, the American doughboy, GI, thinks, hang on a minute, this is what we're fighting for. This is who we're fighting against. This is, this is the, we now have, we have a clear idea of who the enemy are and why we need to bring this t- to a close. Um, and a, 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 a sort of motivational spur in discovering how the POWs have been treated. I thought that was a, that's a fascinating aspect that, again, is resonant of 
1945 in Europe. Um, John, I, 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 just just explain, though, what, what, you know, again, we keep, we keep sort of jumping the gun, don't, don't we? Because we're so excited to talk <laughs> know, about right. this. Uh, um, There's so much to discuss, I know. Yeah. You know. So, 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 you know, what, what is Luzon? Why is Luzon important if they've already got Leyte? Um, um, what are the forces that MacArthur's assembled for this invasion? I, I think we need a bit more kind of, um, we, we should do a little bit of kind of sort of setting the scene a bit. So Luzon is really the largest and most dominant of all the islands. The Philippines is, consists of 7,000 islands of varying sizes. It's so like, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, uh, different religious views. But Luzon, which is home to Manila, obviously the, the wonderful capital of the, the archipelago, um, Luzon is really the dominant place, and it's where um, people tend to speak uh, Tagalog. The which jewel is the of the Orient, language. isn't it? It is, and and the, the Americans had helped sort of build it uh, on the, the American architectural model, the, the American architect Burnham, um, in, from the late 19th, early 20th century. And so Manila is sort of modeled after that to some extent, and obviously a major Spanish influence too, of course. But uh, um, So Luzon is really, uh, by any measure, going to be the capstone of all operations in the Philippines, though by not the only ones in 1945, but the main effort. Um, and so you've got to have Manila uh, certainly for political reasons, but but also I would argue for logistical reasons because it's a, a beautiful harbor. Um, so you have that. You also have, as, as Alan mentioned, th- this whole subplot with uh, POWs and internees. So this is another reason why you've come to the Philippines to liberate these folks. Um, so there's basically, um, you know, th- that's, that's one of the things that MacArthur had argued for in the strategic discussions, we need to go back there and liberate these guys. In terms of the force levels, um, they're enormous. So four divisions uh, land are landed on January 9th, 1945 at Lingayen Gulf, which is like northwest of, of Manila and is the main landing beaches on the island. That's where the Japanese had landed in 1941. So in terms of um, U.S. amphibious infantry divisions, that's really more than we even land at Normandy. Um, believe it or not. <laughs> so think about that. That'll blow your mind. That's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, you know, admittedly, there's no airborne component to this one, to the landings. There will be later on to the operations. But um, but still, you're talking about huge operations. The fleet on its way to Luzon is attacked by kamikazes. Of course, they've been in play since the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Um, uh, and operating and it, from the Philippines, obviously, and that's where they're based. Mostly, although some from Formosa. That that means there's a limited number. They're, and so what the, what the Japanese do here, they basically, they're going to expend their current number of kamikazes that they had and their current planes at that point. Um, and they're going to husband most of the rest of them, of course, famously for the Battle of Okinawa later and for the home islands, obviously. But uh, so they kill about 500 sailors. Um, they don't really sink any ships. General Lumsden. And, General Lumsden, the British liaison to MacArthur's headquarters. And um, MacArthur and Lumsden were pretty close. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's it's really quite tragic how this happens. This was devastating to to MacArthur and everybody in the headquarters who knew Lumsden uh, because he he was very highly thought of. There was already a cost before he got ashore, but the Japanese failed to stop that fleet from being able to land those four divisions. So the four divisions is just the initial part. So you've got two corps ashore, I-Corps, which is going to deal with the northern flank, and then 14th Corps with Mitch the Dash from Manila. And that's Griswold, of course. That's Griswold, yeah. Major General Oscar Griswold, who had um, – he, he just seems to get the dirty jobs in, in the Pacific War. And he's, he's remarkably competent. 
um, but not colorful. And so we don't remember him. But he, James, you and I have talked about this. He keeps this incredible diary, though. And Yeah, which we're now using on Between the Lines. So that's hopefully he's getting a bit of an audience at last. Right from the start, it's evident that you've got very, very peculiar dynamics going on in, in, in intelligence, the American intelligence. And what you're able to say to MacArthur and what he might make of it, what actually the Americans know. So, so John, take us through that, because there's basically there's a giant discrepancy in estimates of the numbers of troops that they think they're, Japanese troops they think they're facing. I mean, it's what, huge. It's a massive yeah, and what, discrepancy. And, what, and, what, and the number that, that Mark MacArthur then picks out of a hat. So if you'd like to... <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, so the reality is there's about 280,000 Japanese soldiers on Luzon alone. Uh, MacArthur has this intel officer, uh, Major General at this point, Charles Willoughby. Um, he seems an absolute, he's, he sounds an appalling individual. I just don't see how he's got to where he's got to. He is on some levels, and on other levels, I have some level of sympathy for him. And what I mean by that is, is this. Um, Willoughby was a self-made guy. I mean, he was born in Germany. He comes to the U.S. as an immigrant. Um, trying to find his way. He joins the army as a private, kind of works his way into a commission, educates himself. He's a tremendous military historian. He would love our podcast, I would venture to say, you know, because <laughs> he just loves any aspect of military history. He's very thoughtful, um, but he's also a bit sycophantic um, in wanting to constantly please MacArthur. And he's, he's also a bit really shouty, kind of a- isn't he? He's a bit he's, he's a bit he, of a martinet, isn't he? He is. He's, a, he's he takes himself very seriously. He's officious. Uh he is he he has a Prussian manner about him. He clicks his heels, he does things like that. Um and he's he's kind of a crypto fascist on some levels. He admires Franco in Spain and so so yeah, that's the appalling side of him that I just can't stand. Um but I also think he <laughs> It's tough to to work your way through the Pacific uh, and all these mixed intel numbers and really come up with a concrete estimate. Now, what I have said about him, what I what I say in this book and the others is that given that, he still has a lot of advantages. He's got the equivalent of ultra, he's got coast watchers, he's got submarines, he's got aerial recon, especially under General Kenny, uh, who's just a remarkable air commander, uh, who Mark Arthur has all all war. And in the Philippines, especially now, he's got guerrillas um, who can provide him with some sense of the Japanese order of battle, I think it's fair to say. And some of those guerrillas are U.S. military. Um, So given all the advantages he have, I thought he should have done better. It's, of course, easy for me to say. Um, but it, so his tendency, so because MacArthur is in this mode of, okay, well, we're just going to steamroll the Japanese here. And there aren't, there isn't that much resistance. You know, he had said the same thing at Leyte and he was of course dead wrong. Um, and he wants the same thing to be true for Luzon. Willoughby picks up on this. And so he has a low ball estimate of like the low two hundreds of Japanese soldiers on Luzon. Um, the sixth army Intel officer thinks it's a little bit higher, like 20 or 30 more. And MacArthur says to him in one briefing, bunk, bunk, there aren't that many Japanese on, uh, on Luzon. <laughs> and so you, you go in with, with really a, not much sense of how many Japanese there are, what their operational intentions truly are. Um, General Yamashita, the, the 14th area uh, army commander who controls the, uh, the ground forces on the Japanese side on Luzon, um, is just kind of determined to, to fight this inland fight and bleed the Americans. He understands that's his best best go. So when MacArthur's troops come to shore, um, he does not. The general himself really doesn't have 
any clue of how many Japanese he's facing on Luzon, believe it or not. Absolutely incredible that. Given, especially given their advantages, as you say, they've they've got the equivalent of ultra and everything, and and yet MacArthur has the sort of confidence and well, no, arrogance is the word to say bunk about. And then he has this conversation with the the Sixth Army Intel officer after that briefing when he's interrupting, saying bunk, bunk, and the the officer's saying, "Oh, General, I guess you don't uh, approve of my uh, my numbers here or something." And then then he has this private conversation with MacArthur, and he's what she says: "There are only three great intelligence officers in military history, and mine isn't one of them, or something yeah, something like it's, that." So it's, it's this amazing. Sort of, <laughs> the slap at Will. So Willoughby and Willoughby, the other thing, he's presiding over this Intel Empire. Uh, because within his purview is also the Allied translator and interpreter section, uh, which, of course, is gathering reams of info on the Japanese, all those captured documents and diaries and all that stuff that they're translating, all the Coast Watchers, all that kind of stuff. So um, Willoughby was very jealous of his kind of bureaucratic turf, and he didn't necessarily work all that well with other members of the staff. So MacArthur's got some issues with people on his staff, I think. But but also it sort of sets up the kind of conflict between MacArthur and his Sixth Army commander, Kruger. Because Kruger's intelligence is different, obviously. And, and, and thinks it's still not high enough, but it's still a lot higher and the number of Japanese soldiers on, on Luzon than the MacArthur staff. Yeah. And, and already there's kind of sort of fissures, aren't there? Uh, and, and you know, I, I think it's a sort of in- extraordinary. And I thought you're, you you can't have answered um, a sort of conundrum. If, you know, if if if, if MacArthur's so impatient of the slow and ponderous Kruger, why does he keep him as army commander? And that's because he's made him, and he can't. You know, and and if he sacks him, that's a criticism of himself and his own judgment. Uh, we have to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a second. Dear listener, it's that time again when I get the opportunity to bring two of my greatest loves together in a single heartwarming spring message. It's the Second World War with beer. Our dear friends at Beer 52 are once again offering listeners to We Have Ways a carefully curated case of free beer brewed in God's own county, Yorkshire. And just to be clear, that case of beer, dear listener, is free. Simply go to beer52.com slash talk and cover just £5.95 postage to receive your free case now. Beer 52's industry experts carefully curate a new case every month, showcasing the very best craft beer and independent breweries from around the world. This month, you'll get the Timothy Taylor Tallboy, a smooth and hoppy pale ale bursting with flavours and aromas. And the chaps at North Brewing in Leeds are sending out a highly drinkable pale ale. Also, Black Sheep Brewery have canned their Rigwelter Dark Ale to cask strength for the first time in its 27-year history. What's that? Don't like dark beer? Simply choose the light case and don't forget you get a couple of tasty snacks and the award-winning Ferment magazine. Even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel any time. So, that's beer52.com slash talk to claim your free case now. That's beer52.com forward slash talk. Cheers! (laughs) 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA. John's taking us through the Philippines in light of his new book, To the End of the Earth. Well, John, who is... Tell us who Kruger is, for, for those who don't know, because yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about... I mean, we, we touched on Eichel Berger earlier, and we have talked about Eichel Berger on the podcast before, um, in a sort of, uh, I think, in an attempt to bring it to people's attention more than anything else. But but who is who is Kruger? Because he's, he's a, an old hand of the Philippines, isn't he? Absolutely. So Lieutenant General Walter Kruger um, had also been born in Germany, believe it or not, <laughs> and uh, had emigrated to the, to the U.S. as an adolescent because his father was in the German army and had died, not in combat, I don't think. But uh, So Kruger's mother takes him to the U.S. What's interesting to me personally, they initially settled in St. Louis, which is you know where I'm from, where I live. And the reason they did it is uh, because there were so many German-owned breweries that were a big part of the St. Louis economy in the late 19th century. So this was a natural place. Uh, so they initially make a life for themselves here. Well, when Kruger was 17, so he's born in 1881. He's a year younger than MacArthur. When he was 17, the Spanish-American War breaks out. Here we go. Come back to that again. So he joins the U.S. Army as a private. Um, and from that humble beginning, he ends up retiring as a four-star general. That was unprecedented in U.S. history, and it'll never happen again, because not only did Kruger have no West Point pedigree, he had no college degree, and he had no high school diploma, and yet he becomes a four-star general by the time he retires. He's a three-star on Luzon, you know, as a, as a, an army commander. But so he had, um, and yet he's, he's really more intellectually engaged and scholarly than many West Point trained officers. He writes, uh, you know, he get he gets field commission. He had served in the Philippines or in the Philippine American war. He knew the terrain backwards and forwards. He, uh, he, he, once he becomes like a field grade officer, um, in the twenties and whatnot, he starts writing these, these sort of deep dive kind of scholarly military journal articles. Um, and he is, he, I think Kruger's greatest strength is the ability to relate to the average soldier because yeah. he was one and he's yeah. really good at that. But he's self-taught then. So he, I mean, how does he educate himself? I mean, you know, you, you don't just sort of, he's, he's an autodidact. I mean, he's, he's a total autodidact. He's just, he is a voracious reader, um, a voracious consumer of military history. He is totally dedicated to his, his profession. Um, he, he reminds me of Patton in that sense that he's just, he's sort of a, um, a military wonk, a military policy nerd. Um, he is just, and yet he, he's not, that isn't just his whole life, the army. I mean, he, he's a, his wife, Grace, was his true soulmate. He was a wonderful father to his three children. He was very, a very warm and loving person as a family guy. But with his colleagues, he could be so brusque, so yeah. rude, so yeah. dense at times, especially senior level. It really is. And so he's really solid, but he hadn't had much combat experience uh, by the time of the war. But they kept him around. He was the third army commander, by the way. Eventually, that's going to be Patton's army. But the third army was, 
uh, doing maneuvers famously in 1941. And of course, who works for Kruger as his chief of staff? None other than Dwight Eisenhower. Um, so he mentors Eisenhower. Um, and then so MacArthur handpicked Kruger to be the commander of his first army-sized um, unit in 1943. And I think there was a couple of reasons for that. One, Kruger's reputation for solid professionalism. Two, there was no question that Kruger would ever try and upstage MacArthur or be in the limelight uh, instead of MacArthur. So he was definitely willing to play second fiddle. And MacArthur certainly wanted that. Fascinating. Do you, do you think he, he sort of suffered? Because he's obviously a very, very capable and clever man. Do you think he kind of suffered from that problem that if someone didn't understand something, it, it, it made him impatient? Because he thought, well, I could figure it out. Oh, I think he definitely did. Yeah. Because that's he, how I he comes he, across as one of those people. He just can't deal with people who can't keep up. Because after all, he's made exactly. himself and he's, he's done it himself. He's got no advantages. And yet there are these people who've been to West Point who can't keep up with him. What's their, what's their bloody problem? You know, that's how he comes over. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right, I think, because he's also, he's kind of contemptuous in some ways of the senior officers as not knowing what a private's life is really yeah. like. Yeah. And, yeah, and if they can't keep up, he's like, well, you know, the heck with it. So he's really tough on like fellow generals and colonels and whatnot once yeah. he has rank. And, and, and yeah, he su- doesn't suffer fools gladly or whatever. Um, but also the other thing too, you know, he's, he, he accrues a lot of operational experience in 1943 and 44 and New Guinea. Yeah, and, yeah. and of course his sixth army fights on Leyte in the fall of 1944. So, you know, he's no rookie, but he's not a lead from the front kind of guy. Um, right. He's a guy who's out and about all day checking on things and people. Uh, but he doesn't think that's necessarily the commander's, proper place at his level to be on the front lines the way we would think of. And so he's also the word you often hear associated with him is cautious. Um, And I I do think that that is justified because he has a kind of methodical, sensible view of operations. He's not a big risk taker in in that sense. He kind of reminds me of Monty in in that respect that um, he's, he's very bright. He's very professional. He's a terrific planner. Um, he's not that great uh, an improviser or innovator, but he also has this sensitivity for the average soldier that I think is incredibly admirable. And I think that was very similar to Monty on, on that yeah. level. But he also, like Monty, who we, there's so, I think we've said before, we've discussed this before, there's so many times with Monty where like, why are you doing that? Why do you say that? How, why are you so appalling sometimes? <laughs> it's the same with Kruger too. It's like, dude, I mean, why are you going to, piss off this colleague yeah by being so brusque uh yeah. he, he's kind of his own worst enemy sometimes yeah. and that's what's brought him into tension and conflict with eichelberger who yeah. is one of the nicest who is the commander the of the eighth army yeah who's the commander of the eighth army by this time and thus appear um though younger of course but uh yeah and he is he's one of the nicest people ever eichelberger is and he can't fathom saying something that will offend somebody or be rude or make somebody feel terrible about themselves. Kruger doesn't care. Um, it's just, and, and I don't know that it's even calculated with Kruger. It's just things blurred out. Uh, so it's a little tough to work for him as a staff, though I will say his staff is pretty loyal to him. 
and, and they will be for the rest of their lives. So there's a lot to recommend Kruger. Um, but if you, if you are putting an army ashore at Lingayen Gulf uh, in January 1945 and you want a quick dash to Manila, he's not your guy. He's not the right man. That's not his So thing. what does happen then? It's pretty ponderous, isn't it, the advance to, to Manila? Yeah, there's immediate tension because, of course, the, the challenge you have when you come ashore, of course, is the logistical side. And we, we've talked about this so much, the, the importance of supply and logistics and all that. Well... So six armies ashore about how do you get stuff to where it needs to be? And you got tough tides, you got lousy roads, you got to build depots, all this kind of stuff going on. But you the, the biggest your flanks. Well, and that's what he's worried about. So the, the biggest problem he's got really is all the, the uh, bridges that are out. There's 217 wooden bridges that are out over water sources between the beaches and Manila. Yeah, I mean, what we should say is that from from Lingayen, John, or from Lingayen all the way down to Manila, there is a, basically a, a, a kind of a plain, isn't there? There's a, there's a sort of fairly flat ground, and the, there's hills down towards Bataan Peninsula, and there's there's hills, very big hills and jungly hills on their left-hand flank as they're heading southwards, uh, and that's what he's worried about. But But they're down in the kind of lowlands on the main thrust of the advance, aren't they, towards Clark Field, which is kind of two-thirds of the way down. Exactly. A lot of floodplains, the Japanese have enhanced that, and then, yes, yeah, so there's all these bridges that are out, so that's going to slow you down, but also the Japanese are to your east in those hills and mountains. So, I mean, certainly if we think of it on its face, we're like, okay, yeah, you got an enemy that has some high ground, and that could strike you on the flanks as you're heading down along whatever is the road net down to Manila. Makes total sense if we just are breezing by and looking at it, but if we really kind of look into it deeper... Um, I, I believe, only me personally, that Kruger's concerns were overblown. And the reason I say that, the Japanese didn't have a lot of artillery. And that's really going to be their biggest weapon to mess with you on your flanks. If they come out to attack, well, then great, because now they've come out of their fortifications and now you've got so much air that can deal with them, so much artillery, even some naval guns. Um, and it's not going to be easy but you're going to do tremendous damage to them. There's only so much they can do unless it's possible that they're going to turn into just complete suicide operators with uh, whatever vehicles they have, whatever tanks. And Well, they don't have many vehicles, do they? They don't have many. They're totally under mechanized. Uh, I like think he's the got whole one armor. The whole of Luzon, it's, it's like 4,500 or something, isn't it? I mean, that's about what they got, and they don't have that much fuel. Uh, so basically, from a Japanese point of view, it's a light infantryman's fight, mostly. Uh, they don't have the artillery to compete with the Americans. And so... Kruger's concerns on it on, on their face are understandable, but when you really kind of dive into it a little deeper, probably over overblown. And, and that's what's frustrating MacArthur is that he wants that quick move to Manila. Um, and, and, and so he is there's tension between these two, because if if he does fire Kruger, well, then it reflects on MacArthur because he's his handpicked guy. And it has been for a year. Um, and he likes him, you know, and, and he respects him. And, and Kruger shouldn't be fired. I don't think that would have been right to fire him. But I think he's miscast. He's uh, it's as if. So you, why doesn't um, he switch roles? Do you think? Why why doesn't he why doesn't he land with Eichelberger and a Farmy and and follow up with? This is the so, part that I have a heck of a time sorting out. Um, I think there was a kind of bureaucratic <laughs> momentum uh, to, to put Sixth Army ashore just because it was bigger and it's a big mission to, to, to land on uh, Lindayan. And it's solid and it's risk averse as well. And it's kind it of, is. you know, they're not going to let you down. And whereas whereas Eighth Army is a bit more kind of seat of your pants. And Eighth Army doesn't have as many divisions at this point. It's been it's taken over the, the remnants of the Lady Mess, um, you know, around Christmas time. And, and so... 
I, I think it would have meant a lot of rejiggering in terms of the bureaucracy, the administration, the supply nets, and it would have put a lot of eyeballs up. Uh, and got uh, on this whole thing and gotten a lot of tongues wagging about MacArthur sort of sidetracking Kruger and all that. And I don't think MacArthur wanted that drama. But al- but also, I mean, given how a muddled intelligence picture is, C- is Kruger being cautious to within what he thinks the larger estimate of Japanese well, strength is? Or, or you, 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 you know, when, when do they find out that their estimates are wrong? Straight away or eventually? Because after eventually. all this... Well, exactly. So <laughs> um, there's 100,000 people off the, off the, on the Japanese ledger... Who may suddenly appear, according to the original yeah. Willoughby's defense estimate, uh, 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 intelligence estimates. I mean, the other thing I thought was really interesting about Kruger is that he knows his way around the Philippines intimately, doesn't he? He gets yep. to places and goes, oh, "I was here in, I was here whenever," and I know I, around the corner there's a gully there, and there's, a, you know, he, he just knows the place. And there like, always is. He's uh, absolutely yeah. spot on. Oh, he yeah, knows it backwards right. and forwards. Yeah. It's incredible. There's one day that he's riding around. Typically, he would ride around uh, with, with staffers and a couple of Jeeps. Um, and Alamo scouts, who were not on operations, would operate as his bodyguards. They were like, these were like recon scouts you would send into potential invasion places beforehand to gauge how many Japanese were there. Heck of a job. Um, and they were amazing. But uh, so Kruger would sort of roam around all day. And there was one time where, where he just kind of is passing by a place and he, he happens to say to one of the lieutenant colonels with him, oh, uh, see that spot over there? I was commissioned on that spot, you know, in, in whatever <laughs> year it was. You know, it's like, oh, really? 1903 wow. or something. I mean, just stuff like that. There was another time where um, they, they got kind of snared up in a, in a traffic jam and, and Kruger's like, uh, you know, actually, you guys went the wrong way. If we backtrack to sound this way or whatever, uh, then we're going to be able to get there much more quickly. I don't know why you guys went this way. And, and they're all just blown away because like, did the old man study the map this morning or did he just yeah. know that from 40 years ago? And I think it was probably the latter, but he wow. studied the map too, but so, yeah, he's really incredible on so many levels. So he'd, he'd have this routine. He's very methodical. So he'd be out there all day checking on things and people and whatnot. And then he'd be back by about six at night uh, with his staff in his command post. And they would have dinner. And there, there would be very little color to the conversation. Um, mm. He just ate, like, heavily salted food, basic food. And then he would read paperbacks. He would read uh, novels. And the uh, the front veranda of the, the house where he made his HQ was just sort of stacked with all these books, these Armed Forces paperbacks and whatnot that the general was consuming. And then he'd get up probably 5 in the morning the next day and go and, you know, do it again. So he that's, that's sort of what – and so MacArthur – is so frustrated with him at one point that he locates his HQ ahead of Six Army's HQ as a kind of prod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's MacArthur being MacArthur too, because for all his foibles, one thing is really undeniable is he's a very courageous guy, and he he sees more danger than any other Allied theater commander that I can think of in this in this war. You know, yeah. especially from the forty two on, I guess. But uh, yeah. so he is not shy about being in combat, and he so he wants to kind of shame Kruger into into more speed, but Kruger's not going to do that. So, yeah, I mean, Al, you mentioned the uh, the intel estimates of the Japanese uh, numbers. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Kruger thinks that the Japanese have more people than MacArthur does. So, yes, he's going to be a little more cautious on that level, too, I think. Um, so that's one of the things that sort of justifies this kind of slower pace for him. Yeah. Um, I, I argue in the book, and really not, I don't want to really disparage Kruger because I, you know, certainly have deep respect for him, but I, I would argue in the book that uh, really the ultimate blame for this is MacArthur's because if he wanted that quick dash to Manila, which made total sense, yeah, uh, he should have put Eichelberger in, in charge because 
that's the guy who is suited for it. Um, and he probably would have gotten the results he wanted, which was a much quicker go into Manila and probably to catch the Japanese before they're able to fortify quite to the level they did. It still would have been tough. Well, John, uh, afraid we've got to stop there. Um, we'll be back next time to talk more about Luzon, Philippines, and maybe Corregidor. There's just so much to talk about. See you later. Bye-bye.